This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to the final seminar in Jesus, Arabic, and Kale, Power to Change the World. So far in this seminar, we've looked at different things around the world that perhaps needed to be changed and talked a little bit about different ways in which we as God's children might be involved in changing them. This afternoon, I have the, the kind of a, a difficult task of trying to pull together all the different loose ends and talk about more ways in which we might be active in uh, fulfilling the Great Commission and some other uh, things on that nature. Um, <clears throat> as many of you are aware of, there was a significant snowstorm in the East Coast just uh, last week. How many of you guys heard about this big snowstorm? Yeah? Well, <clears throat> I really love snow, and I love sledding. You guys enjoy sledding? Yeah. So um, just before we came here, Petra and I decided to try and go sledding, and actually there are no good sledding hills near her parents' home, so we had to get in the car and drive for a while, and this was kind of in the middle of the storm. So we were driving down the highway, and the highway was pretty much uh, like this slushy stuff that had packed solid and frozen. Uh, it was very, very slippery, but there didn't seem to be any cars on the road, so I was driving along at a good clip. And then I came over a hill, and directly in front of us was a large line of cars in both lanes. They were going much slower than we were, and there was no way I could stop in time behind them. So I kind of slid through them, doing kind of this slaloming thing, until we finally slowed down. And it was very, very exciting, a little bit um, out of control, but it definitely kept me on the edge of my seat. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because I've got that same sort of feeling right now that I did when I was uh, driving just a couple days ago. Uh, so we definitely need to start out with prayer. Our Father in heaven, you know everything, and we actually don't know very much at all. But we do know that we need your help. So Lord, I ask that you would speak through me today, that you would open all of our ears, our hearts, and our minds, so we could receive your message. Lord, I'm sorry that I am not better prepared this morning. I pray you'll give me wisdom, grace, and courage, and bless this talk. We pray in your name. Amen. So like I said, uh, for the first couple talks, we mostly focused uh, on things in the world that are really uh, problem areas. Mindy talked this morning about some of the major agricultural needs, and then about some things that we're doing uh, to try and meet some of those needs. This morning, as, as we're talking about this business of power to change the world, I want to talk about some specific ways uh, in which we as God's children might go about meeting some of those needs. So do that. Petra, could you bring up some of my written aids? Thanks so much. So as we think about going about fulfilling the commission that God has given us, the first thing that, that should come to our minds, and it's, it's going to be slightly reminiscent of my first talk, although uh, the similarities are unlikely to continue, uh, is the importance of our connection with God. How many of you guys have ever been bungee jumping? Can I see some hands? 
Thank you. I'm glad I'm not the only person who's done it. Um, I went bungee jumping about 10 years ago at Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. At that time, it was the highest bungee jump in the world. It was about eight seconds of free fall from when you jumped off till the ropes started tightening. And I remember uh, standing on the edge of the bridge, looking down, and looking also at this rope that was connecting me to the bridge. And I noticed it was kind of frayed, you know, because it's unlikely that a bungee jumping station in Zimbabwe is going to have the same sort of safety standards that one will in a place like New Zealand, where bungee jumping was invented. So I jumped, and it was quite an experience, actually. Um, in order to jump well, you don't just kind of step off the bridge. You actually jump out like this, so that when you fall, you don't fall like this. You fall kind of in a circle like that. And for me, strangely enough, the scariest part was coming back up. I've had enough adventures and misadventures falling so to be somewhat used to the fear of falling, but kind of looking between my feet back up at the bridge and feeling like I was going to rocket out of this world is a fairly scary experience. Uh, and, you know, I thought about all of this a few years later when I heard that, in fact, the bungee cord did break when someone was jumping at that bridge. Uh, it didn't end particularly well. And all of you, no doubt, are very aware and have immediately made the connection that I'm about to make, which is that as we seek to do God's work as his children, it is very important that we stay connected with him in the same way it's very important that we stay connected when we're bungee jumping. And it's the sort of thing where even just a short gap in the time we're connected can have some serious negative consequences. Before we get too far, I do want to go back to uh, our mission and I'm going to go back to where we were at the beginning of this lecture series, which was where Mindy started us, kind of our mission as God's children, our, our mission statement and our call. We'll turn to Matthew chapter 25. We don't have to read this entire section, but uh, Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, these verses basically cover Jesus' charge to his followers in meeting the physical needs of the physically poor. And then, if we turn over to Matthew chapter 8, 28, we'll see that um, Jesus gives a, a somewhat similar charge to his disciples. It's the, the well-known, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, actually meeting the spiritual needs of the spiritually poor. And as Mindy also pointed out in her first lecture, these these two passages form kind of a bookend around a very important event in, in the world's history, which is what happens between Matthew 25 and Matthew 28. Yeah, the crucifixion. Uh, and as we pull all of these things together, this, this is kind of, the, kind of the Magna Carta of Christians as we seek to live in this world and do the work of God. As well as talking about commitment to our mission, I wanted to, to spend a few minutes talking about uh, connection. I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about commitment. And when I think of commitment, uh, I think of a game that my brothers and I used to play. And I'm really glad that Jonathan Garens is here because uh, he's a veteran of this game, just so you guys know. The game we called um, Pirate Wars. I grew up on the ocean. My parents owned a number of small sailboats. 
And it, usually what happened in pirate wars was something like this. We'd put a few people in each boat and would sail out a little ways into the ocean and then try and pirate each other's boats, you know, board the other guy's boat, throw those people off, capsize their boats, some of those sort of things. And sometimes if there was one boat that felt it was in danger of being overpowered, those people sail as close as they could to the shore and then, like, abandon ship and swim away. So as you might imagine, thinking about this, people who were larger had some advantage over people who were smaller. So to kind of cancel this out, we adjusted the rules a bit. Uh, So the larger kids could push and shove and grab, and that was all. The kind of kids in the middle were allowed to do things like kicking and punching, and the very youngest kids were allowed to use their paddles on anyone who tried to board the boat. So at this particular story, um, my youngest brother, John, and it's it's really interesting, you know, like the last lecture I gave, I told a story about Petra, and I had to be somewhat careful, right, because Petra's here in the room. But my brothers aren't here today, so I have a little bit more license. Uh, John, who is now um, 6'2", a, a much bigger guy than me, was at that point a much smaller version of himself. And the people in his boat that day were similarly sized, not at all large. So I I remember seeing them sail across the water being pursued by a boat that was manned by much larger and stronger people. And perhaps the wise course of action for John to do would have been to sail close to the shore and abandon ship and do all of that. But he didn't. He tried to outrun the other boat, and he did a, a very good job. The only problem was his boat was kind of chronically slow. So eventually, the other, the other guys caught up and started to board. At which point, John and the people on his boat were faced with a couple of very unattractive alternatives, one of which was uh, the humiliation of just surrender. Uh, the other option, of course, was to dive in and swim for shore. They were far enough out, it would have been a very long and very cold swim. So that kind of put steel into their resolve to fight to the death, so to speak. And I remember as the other boat pulled up alongside, John grabbed his paddle and just swung it right over the head of one of these other big kids. Crash! And then (laughs) hit another person in the arm. And that kind of galvanized the rest of his crew. And they followed suit and started walloping the the other other kids with their paddles. And interestingly enough, uh, the the older kids backed off rather quickly after a few slams in the head from a paddle. Uh, (laughs) I remember John and his his guys kind of sailing away. If if not in victory, at least they had had survived that attack. You know... There's kind of a courage that comes with a certain level of commitment. Once you've thrown away certain levels of options, the only things that you have left to do tend to be um, somewhat courageous. I think as we're talking about um, the mission that we have here that is outlined in the end of the book of Matthew, it's important that when we as Christians come to this, we think of it in, in terms of commitment, in terms of both connection and commitment. And of course, the devil will definitely try and sidetrack us from this commitment to our mission. And I just want to briefly highlight a few ways in which this may happen. One very common technique the devil uses is to blind us to the needs of the world around us. Uh, A lot of us just aren't aware of all the physical and spiritual poverty that exists all around us. There's there's some nice... uh, Adventist subdivisions that are are fairly self-contained, and I'll probably say a little bit more about that later. But I think Petra and especially Mindy have done an excellent job of of preventing any of us from falling into a state of blindness. 
Remember even uh, just this morning, Mindy had some very powerful slides up there about world hunger, how more than 800 million people are, are hungry around the world right now. But as we talk about hunger, I think it's, it's also worth keeping in mind the spiritual hunger that exists around the world, where there's about oh, close to 3 billion people who have never truly heard the gospel. When we hear these sort of statistics, those massive, massive numbers, it's very tempting to be overwhelmed. I'm sure at different points in your life you've been overwhelmed by the needs around you. I remember the first time I was really overwhelmed was when my family went as missionaries to Nepal. We were at a, a rural clinic in the western highlands. It's a part of Nepal where no foreigners were really usually allowed to be, 14 kilometers to the nearest road. My dad was the only doctor for about 140,000 people. There's some interesting political dynamics, too, because the communists were in control at night. The royal forces were in the day. My dad was treating both sides. But the poverty was just overwhelming. Uh, People were living on much less than a dollar a day, and and we tried to live at the same level as much as possible. I remember during the three months we were there, there was only one piece of fruit that we had for our family, and we split it between the five of us. It was a lemon a nice big lemon. We ate the whole thing. Seeds, peel, we ate the whole thing down. Um, When we're confronted by poverty on the scale, it's very tempting to be overwhelmed. And I remember when I first arrived in Nepal, just the sights and the smells, I felt like I wanted to just turn around and get on the plane. And that's what many of us do, at least intellectually, when we're confronted with uh, the needs in the world around us. It's it's tempting for us to think that there's actually nothing that can be done. The needs are are simply too vast. But it's important to also keep in mind that this isn't necessarily true. I'm going to take a a quote here, a thought that comes from a a great book I, I recommend you read. It's by a guy named David Livermore called To Give or Not to Give. And in this book, Mr. Livermore points out that if Protestant Christians in North America, returned a faithful tithe, there would be enough money to feed all the hungry people in the world, provide basic medical care for all the people that are unable to access it today, and have enough money left over to double local church budgets. And that's just Protestants in North America returning tithe. So when we look at all these problems, it's important to also see that There are solutions, solutions that may involve perhaps all of us, but certainly solutions nonetheless. And as we think of this, we should also remember that God, even through individuals, can do really powerful things. How many of you guys are in college right now of some kind? Yeah. When I was in college, I worked for a guy named James Standish, who at that point was the director of religious liberty, kind of. In the U.S., I guess in some ways that meant his job was to be the, the go-between between the Adventist church and the U.S. government. And there were several times that I saw him interact with different senatorial and congressional offices, often on major human rights issues. And God has given James Standish a lot of persuasive ability and considerable eloquence. And I remember going into meetings, and God was able to use him to change people's minds in a way that really impacted events for for a lot of people. And I'm sure that there are ways that God can use you, um, perhaps not in the same job as James Standish, but I think equally powerful if we're willing to be.
be used. As we try and find ways in which to reach the world for Jesus, I think it's important for us to remember to spend some time with those who need our help. It's important for us to spend time with people who are different from us, poor people who are poor both physically and spiritually. People who are not Adventists, people who are not of our cultures or racial backgrounds, people who are different, and we need to be their friends so that eventually we can lead them towards Jesus. And before I make my next point, I want to make kind of a caveat, and that is that I really do believe that God can equip the people who he calls and qualify the people who he calls. But all that aside, it's worth keeping in mind that Jesus did spend three years training the disciples before he gave them all these commands that we were just looking at in Matthew. And there are a variety of ways in which I think we can pursue useful skills. And I'm not going to even try and give an exhaustive list, but I do want to highlight a few things that we can do to potentially make us more useful for God's kingdom. One thing, of course, is going to school. There are some kind of traditional Adventist educational tracks like various lines of medical work, and those are are useful. They have been useful, and I think they'll continue to be useful. I think teaching is is something that's often underestimated. The impact of teachers can be very, very high. Also, even things like accounting and finance. You'd be surprised how much the church needs very good financial minds. But I think, and here I should give credit to a girl named Joya Ross, who rode on the plane with Petra and I over here, who said that no matter what your degree is, God can use it in some way, shape, or form. And I think that if we put the things we have at God's disposal, he can indeed certainly use us. We also need to keep in mind practical things. Our culture, I think, is gradually becoming less and less practical, and I really appreciated how this morning Mindy emphasized the importance of agriculture. I think we could have had another talk on the importance of things like mechanics, on construction. All these things are are very useful for the kingdom of God. And while we're talking about practical skills, I think it's worth keeping in mind other practical skills, perhaps more modern practical skills, like repairing computers and electronics. And it's worth also coming back to some of Petra's points on the importance of language. The more languages we know, the more effectively we can communicate with a wide range of people. I think these are all ways in which we can make ourselves more useful for God's kingdom. But nothing teaches like experience. And I think as we try and grow, it's worth getting some experience. As you read through the Gospels, you'll find several times when Jesus sends out his disciples into Israel to kind of practice a little bit. He didn't just cut them loose for the first time when he went to heaven. They had had experience before in reaching people and teaching people. And so we, as we grow... I think it's, it's good if we take various mission trips. Short-term are, are good, longer-term are better. It's good to practice being around people who are very much different than us. It's very difficult for us to do very much by ourselves. And here is where I think GYC presents an awesome opportunity for all of you. As we've talked about all the different things that need to be done in this world for God's kingdom. And I know in all the other seminars, there are a lot of other topics going on about big needs in the world. 
it's worth keeping in mind that it, solutions are not easy to find as individuals. You remember in my talk about sustainability and effective missions, we discussed how a team should contain enough people so that one or two members can come and go, and yet the team and the project can continue on. If there's any one person who is irreplaceable, then the project is in some way unsustainable. So here, as we're thinking about different solutions to the problems that we face, it's important not to just think of us, but to think in terms of we. And here at GYC, it's a wonderful place to build that we. And I'm speaking from experience. There are a number of people who worked with me in Gimby and even on other projects who I, I kind of recruited here at GYC. And I encourage you, as you're trying to find how um, God wants you to serve in your life, to talk to like-minded people and build teams. When you build teams, it's important that the teams be diverse, not only in the skill sets represented, but also in the cultures and backgrounds, and, and perhaps even in the opinions represented. We need to love each other with the differences, as Petra reminded us. I also want to talk about how we as individuals should support the, the work that our church is doing corporately to meet some of these needs we've discussed. Early on, mentioned, Mindy talked about some of the, the disconnects and tithe, and I'm going to bring that up one more time. If every person on the books of the Adventist church paid a faithful tithe, the church would realize about $14 billion in income every year from tithe. Instead, the church realizes $2 billion. Now, that missing $12 billion never really hits us, right? Because we insist that our church provide us with the same pastors and facilities that it would, even if the whole rest of the $14 billion was there. What takes the hit, of course, is missions. And what's more, mission offerings as a whole have fallen off dramatically over the past 70 years, even as measured against tithe. You can measure this and the impact that it makes in several ways. For example, there's one particular department, even at the general conference level, that is critical for international mission work that used to have 27 people. Now, their staff is three. You can also look at it in terms of the impact on institutions. And Mindy showed us some wonderful photos of different institutions around the world. Back in the 1950s and 60s, the best hospitals and schools in many countries were Adventist institutions. Even the United States State Department and other embassies would put in their documents, if you get sick, go to the Adventist hospital. When Billy Graham visited Ethiopia back in the day and came down with, with some illness and got very, very sick, he went to the Adventist doctor, who happened to be Petra's grandfather. Unfortunately, things have changed over the years, and, and we have gone in many countries from being the head to the tail. And, and I want to emphasize that it's not due to a lack of skills or expertise, because many of the people who spearheaded the, the early rise of our church and missions are, are still alive, and, and the message still remains the same. It's mainly a problem of resources. It's very difficult for even the best people to do much with just a little. 
I don't want to take anything away from the various independent ministries that serve the church in many areas. I know many of them are represented here, and many of us have served with them. But I think we need to think of this in terms that are more of like a both and, and not either or. Of course, there are different contexts in which the church can more effectively address problems than independent ministries, and vice versa. The point is that we need to uh, take seriously what God, the commands God has given us, including in our giving. You know, at some point, though, we have to stop preparing to go and actually be of service. When I was younger, I used to do quite a bit of sailboat delivery. Uh, and I, I learned quite a bit about the sort of people who own big fancy yachts and the sort of lives they lead. And what I found is, is generally something that goes a bit like this. People dream of sailing around the world. They call it blue water cruising, going out and you know, the only thing in front of you is the horizon. A lot of people have this dream, but they realize that it costs money to buy a boat. It costs money to live while you're on the boat. So people try and get good jobs. They work very hard. They buy boats. And then they keep working and working. And, and then they buy bigger boats. And pretty soon they can't sail those bigger boats by themselves, so they have to hire crew people to come along and help sail them, which is some of what I did. And they, they work very hard, so they might spend a few days in the winter sailing in the Caribbean and a few days in the summer sailing the boat in Maine. And they'd get someone like me to help sail the boat, you know, through there via Bermuda or whatever. But they don't actually get to put into practice what they're sacrificing for. And I've seen this in many different contexts, particularly you know, when I was in Gimby. There were many people who contacted us and wanted to come and serve as missionaries. But the vast majority of them had not taken the time to equip themselves to be useful for service. There were also many people who we desperately wanted to come and help us, but who were not willing to come. Somehow there was a, this large group of unqualified people and who wanted to come and a very small number of qualified people who were actually willing to make that sacrifice. And I think it's important for each one of you as you're developing your skills and growing and growing and becoming more and more effective for God's kingdom that you choose to use those skills for God's kingdom and not just to uh, benefit yourself only. As we talk about how to meet the needs around the world, I want to come back from, to a quote uh, in The Desire of Ages. It's a, a very uh, important quotation, I think, for us to keep in mind as we go forward in God's work. Because you know, we realize, and, and we mentioned this at the beginning this morning, that without God's power and his presence, it's almost impossible for us to make any lasting progress. But here Ellen White reminds us, and I quote, It is in doing Christ's work that the church has the promise of his presence. Go teach all nations, he said, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. To take his yoke is one of the first conditions of receiving his power. The very life of the church depends upon her faithfulness in fulfilling the Lord's commission. To neglect this work is surely to invite spiritual feebleness and decay. Where there is no active labor for others, love wanes and faith 
grows dim. Another way to think of this is to think back to the gospel shoes that it talks about in Ephesians. Remember in Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about these shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. Yes? Thanks, Jonathan. The page number is 825. So as we think about this in another way, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 15, it's talking about the armor of God and the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace come up. And it's, it's interesting that shoes and peace are connected here. Because you won't find these shoes of the preparation of gospel of peace on someone who's moving still. A couple Christmases ago, I, I took a trip through northern Ethiopia with Petra and a variety of friends, actually including Laurel. And on this trip, we visited the Simeon Mountain National Park. And we drove the Land Cruiser up, or most of the way up, a mountain called Rastashan, which is the high point of Ethiopia. So it's about 15,000 feet high. As we were climbing and climbing and climbing, the Land Cruiser started overheating. And there are various things we tried to do to keep the Land Cruiser cool, some of which worked better than others. But one thing we noticed is if any time we got going down a hill, if we could drive as fast as possible, the increased airflow on the radiator would cool the whole car down. Make sense? Right? I think the same thing is true with Christianity. Christianity was made to move. That's why shoes are part of the armor of God. And that's why when we think of fulfilling the Great Commission, we need to keep the first word in mind, which is, after all, go. We can also think of this in terms of how we may find peace as a church corporately. How many of you guys enjoy camping and backpacking? Good. So I'm in the right crowd to tell the story. So I went to college at what was then Columbia Union College in Tacoma Park, Maryland, which is in the middle of the city. But every chance I got, I tried to go camping. And one of the best places to camp, at least within striking distance, was West Virginia. One particular weekend, we were camping at Spruce Knob State Park. And we'd stayed up kind of late the night before, and we're trying to sleep in in the morning. And we woke up when someone in the campsite directly next to us fired up their chainsaw and cut down a large tree by their tent site. Fortunately, the tree didn't fall on us, but we were kept awake also when, when the guy fired up the splitter that was in the bed of his pickup truck and split the log into sections, then put the sections on the fire and poured a, a significant amount of gasoline on the fire and lit it up, enough so when I finally looked out the tent window, there were flames going up about 30 feet. It was about that time that a bunch of rangers showed up and got this guy in trouble, and we decided we needed to go find our Sabbath blessing in another location. <clears throat> but I'll mention this in contrast to a camping trip that Petra and I took this summer. Petra and I hiked a section of the Appalachian Trail known as the 100-Mile Wilderness. It's the remote, most remote section of the Appalachian Trail. It's in Maine, and there's no real place on this 100 miles to resupply. All the food, whatever you need for that distance, has got to be on your back. And as we hiked this section of trail, we met very, very few people. And the people who we did meet were not the very obnoxious types. They weren't able to bring their splitters or their chainsaws for logistical reasons. And I think, you know... <laughs> In the context of mission work, we should keep this in mind as well. 
I mentioned to you about working with James Standish, and I talked some about some kind of the, the more glamorous elements of our work, visiting various congressional offices. But there are also some um, less enjoyable parts of the job, and one thing that I particularly dreaded was building a database of how many Adventists were in each congressional district of the United States. And it took a very long time, and it wasn't much fun, but I learned something interesting in the end, and I'm sure you've already suspected it, and that is that you find like this big cluster of Adventists around Berrien Springs, and a large cluster of Adventists around Collegedale in Tennessee. And there's another big group around Loma Linda, and there's a big group by the General Conference, and there's a couple of these kind of like Adventist ghetto type places. And then the Adventist church is spread extremely thin over the rest of the United States. I've often thought that maybe it's a little bit like uh, my two camping trips, that perhaps we'd have a lot more peace in the church if there was a bit more space between us. As I think of that, I'm remembering um, another story. My dad is a doctor, and he has all kinds of great patients and stories about them. And There's one particular couple who had been married for about 60 years, and when they were in his office one day, just smiling happily at each other, obviously totally in love, he asked them, what's the secret of your wonderful, happy marriage? They said, do you have time for us to tell you? And he said, yes. So they told him. And this is basically the story they told. It went like this. Pretty early on in the marriage, the husband and the wife were driving back together from this community meeting. And the wife was at the wheel. As they drove down the road, the husband started to make snide remarks about the wife's driving style. This continued as the miles went by. And the wife didn't say very much, but finally, after about 15 minutes of this, she stopped the car and said, Honey, can you check in the trunk? I think I might have left my purse back at the meeting. And of course, as soon as he was out of the car, she put her foot down. And he had to walk home, which was about 20 miles. Apparently, their marriage was much happier after that. You know, I I sometimes think the same thing could be very much true for us as Adventists. As you are no doubt aware, there's, there's a number of people who think it's rather fashionable to spend their time being very critical and undermining some of the core beliefs of the Adventist church. And it's possible to engage these people in debate, and I've done some of that, and I'm sure you've done some of that as well. But in the end, it's not much fun. It's kind of like mud wrestling a pig. Even the winner ends up losing. And so I think in many ways the solution is to do something similar to what the wife did in, the, in this story is to put down our foot and go. Because when we go, we will need to make significant sacrifices. And come to think of it, if someone is spending a lot of time being very cynical and trying to undermine a bunch of beliefs, it's highly unlikely they'll be willing to make significant sacrifices to support those beliefs. So sometimes I think it's better, rather than to stay and debate, to build peace by simply moving ahead and leaving such people behind. But sometimes, even when we go, even when we are missionaries in a remote and difficult-to-work-in place, we will come in conflict with each other. How many of you have experienced conflicts between missionaries? 
Yeah. So what do we do then? It's a tough problem, and, and I, I do not even pretend to have all the answers here. But I will say that I think praying together is the right place to start. But if we still can't get along, I think it's wise to remember what Paul and Barnabas did. Sometimes there may be a time to, to go our separate ways. And you know, when you think about it, there's really no shortage of work to be done. There's actually more people who are physically and spiritually hungry than when Jesus gave these commands in Matthew. There's no shortage of work for us to do. So if we can't get along, it may be best to spread out just a bit. Now, I I have a number of other points here to talk about, but I'm aware that I do not have a monopoly on good ideas. I also know that many of you have a lot of mission experience. So what I'd like to do right now is uh, to rest my voice and perhaps utilize yours. So here's what I've got in mind. I'd like like you to divide up in groups of about five and spend some time thinking about concrete ways that we, as God's children, can move God's work forward in accordance with his commands, like in Matthew 25, for physical needs and also Matthew 28, spiritual needs. I think it would be really interesting to kind of do some intellectual crowdsourcing this afternoon. So let's just take a few minutes, divide up into groups, and then um, each group can elect a spokesperson and we'll briefly just share some of the ideas we've come up with, and then I'll kind of wrap things up. All right? So let's take some time and do this. I hope all of you guys are good friends, and if you're not now, I trust you very soon will be. All right, are we about ready? Okay, so which group wants to go first this, this afternoon here? Do we have any volunteers for first shares? Really? No, I don't. Petra, could you write our suggestions down on the board as we, as we go? All right. Um, I have, I live in Tennessee, so there's a lot of people there that stand around on the corners with the signs, you know, and I always feel bad not giving people money, but at the same time, you know, I feel like I could do more than just give someone money. So I was thinking, and actually Kelsey does this already, but like creating a package of sorts for the homeless or that are standing out on the street signs that have useful things in them, not a whole lot, but something that you can keep in your car at all times and be able to you know, give them not only um, useful things, but some maybe spiritual literature as well, and contact information for the local church where they could get in contact with everybody. And that way you don't have to feel bad about passing people by, but at the same time you can help them. Okay. Let's just go down this side and then up back with you guys. Okay, we have a few things down on our list. Um, we talked about supporting the corporate church through mission offerings, um, going back home and, and reviewing how much of our offering budget is actually going into global missions. And for the whole church, um, emphasizing that more by making sure that we show mission spotlight. I mean, we have um, the resources 
for spreading the news to the church about what they're giving mission money for, getting mission stories. I mean, these days you could even have a real live missionary from the field talking via Skype every Sabbath probably. I mean, there are some that um, it's not as easy for as others. But emphasizing it too in the children's Sabbath school, and I know as a kid Sabbath school teacher, sometimes it's really hard to find time for that with everything else that you want to put into Sabbath school time. But that's something that you you put into the church culture from childhood. Um, choosing specific corporate things to sacrifice. Requiring that every member, maybe require is a strong word, but require that every member of the church be involved in some kind of ministry, you know, a, a culture where that's expected that every church member has a place, a part to play in the church's ministries. More active recruitment of volunteers and missionaries, you know, letting people know um, what kind of needs are out there and what kind of positions maybe that, that they could fill. Have teams for your local ministry so that things aren't headed up by just one person with a vision and then it's not sustainable if they have to go or they run out of steam. And get your youth involved and excited in local ministries and support for um, foreign ministries too. Um, our discussion focused first around building relationships and real friendships so we can get to know the people, you know, their concerns and their problems. And also as a community at large, like getting to know your community and what, you know, their needs are, like we were talking about the homeless and um, ministering to them. And then we talked about like what Mindy was saying this morning, agriculture, and how that's been used as a tool to reach out and... <laughs> grab people and then we went on to healthy living Uh, my church used the chip program the forks over knives as a tool for healthy living reaching out to communities since healthy living seems to be more in the forefront of a lot of the news and they used that previous to an evangelistic series to draw people in and when they had that friendships and relationships also brought them into the evangelistic series and we had several converts from that so ideas like that Okay, well, one of our members left, but, and what was her idea again? Oh, yes, okay, the building the restaurants in, like, convention centers and, and other places downtown so that people can, can uh, be exposed to our health message that way. That's not a new idea, but it's something that, maybe an old idea we could do better at uh, implementing. Another idea that uh, Brother Oliver here had was talking about the need in a lot of our communities in this country for English classes, and that we have an opportunity here to reach out to people that um, would like to know English better or may not know it at all, and we can bring them to our churches and teach them. And so that was an idea he had. And then we also had an idea for um, our sister here from inner city Chicago. What was your name, sister, again? Gladdy. yes. She said that in her part of the world, um, the young people she works with don't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables. I mean, you'd think in Chicago you'd be able to go to the grocery store and buy them, but they don't. And so um, 
just how they reached out and they provided baskets of fresh fruit and vegetables to people uh, that were in need, and that was a, a powerful ministry. So, and I think part of that, too, part of the idea was that we could grow our own. Churches could somehow provide those. So those were just a few of the ideas, Paul, and I'm sure there's many others that we could talk about as well. Okay, so we talked about a few different ideas. We talked about um, how our church is already doing a golden roll project, which is where we go out into our community and go house to house and talk to people um, who may need ha- have a great need. And if they don't have any needs, then we usually ask them if they know anyone who has a need. And then we usually pray before we leave. But like recently, we've put a roof on a house, and we've done firewood. And while the men are doing the jobs that the women can't do, we always go in and we talk to the families um, and talk about the Bible. Um, Then we talked about the CHIP program and different thrift stores that we could put up in the community. We were all one big group, so um, we started discussing what are uh, physical needs, and we identified uh, health, um, structure, shelter, specifically for education, and um, what was the last one? Hunger, basically. And so we're like, you know, we need to support medical missions, we need to support uh, those educational buildings that are trying to be built up, and, you know, like Dorka societies that... uh, and Maranatha projects. So, you know, being as young as we are, we can help by, uh, instead of buying all this stuff that we see in the malls and stuff, we could save up a little bit and actually donate it and give it to the furtherance of the work for the ministry. And um, we also um, said that with... Um, mental health, we could be big brothers and big sisters so that little kids who look who would learn to see this influence and look up to us would be more open-minded to seeing who Jesus really is. Since all of us are students, we decided, we were talking about how um, Ellen White has this quote that says that many students when they graduate from college are less prepared for God's work than when they entered. And so we were saying that how we think we should finish the education that um, God is providing for us. and then, But while we're getting it, that we need to make sure to reach out to those around us so that we don't lose our fire before we get out into the work. Oh, we also talked about um, not only uh, missionary stuff abroad, but we talked about working... Um, in America, and meeting people on their own level, and um, to do anything that um, helped encourage them, whether that be like singing in a nursing home, or working with outreach with your church, and we also talked about um, going and being willing to um, use your skills abroad to help people, and a lot of those are like medical missions, you know, that meets the spiritual and the physical needs of people, educational missions, um, and also 
having a support group within that missionary team of other skills that a lot of people don't think about, like plumbing and construction and maintenance. And there's a whole nother, um, you don't just have to be a doctor to be able to go and help people because the doctors also need help helping people. Well, many thanks to all of you for your suggestions. I feel like this um, seminar is the stronger for a sharing of ideas like this. And uh, it's particularly good because when you come up with an idea, you're more likely to do it than if I come up with an idea. So I'm really looking forward to see how God continues to work in all of your lives and in all of your communities. I want to close now by talking a little bit about perspective. As Seventh-day Adventists, we know that the world actually is probably unlikely to become a better place in many ways. And so it can be challenging for us as as we try and and do humanitarian work and feed the hungry and things like that to realize that many of these challenges are are only going to grow. But in the midst of all this, I really do think it is important to keep perspective in the big picture and There's a story I like to tell uh, that I think illustrates this fairly well. Have any of you guys ever played ice hockey? Yes, a few. Having grown up in Maine, where the winters are cold and the ponds are many, uh, ice hockey was a favorite activity. And uh, I remember a a lot of really fun games. And I I just want to tell you about one game in particular. Usually, when we played hockey, uh, we choose teams like this. One person gets blindfolded, and we throw all the sticks in the middle in this pile, and then the blindfolded person separates them out into two stacks, right? And sometimes this ends up with very fair teams. Other times, it doesn't. I remember uh, on this particular day, we split the teams up, and it was also a time when my youngest brother, John, who is now very big was then very small. He went uh, with his team to one side of the pond and kind of looked at the people who were with him. And he was small. And it was just a bunch of, of small girls with him. And then he looked at the other side of the vice to where the rest of us were. He began to get very discouraged and pretty upset. And John is a very physically tough person, but he never liked to have his rights violated. And so uh, this, this potential unfairness was really something that was causing him a lot of stress until one of the girls pointed out there was one hockey stick still on the ice. So he skated over and picked it up, and it was on the side that was theirs. Uh, And it was actually uh, the stick that belongs to our other brother, Barry, who's in between the two of us. Now, at least back in those days, uh, Barry was very much the dominant player on the ice, particularly on a large pond with few people, because he was fast enough he could go through the rest of us, It was relatively easy for whoever had Barry in their team to win. Unfortunately for John and the rest of his team, Barry was just getting out of the car. He still had on his snow boots, and he hadn't yet put on his skates. And Barry's the type of person that does things carefully and well. So all of us knew good and well that it would be another five or even ten minutes before Barry was ready to play. And of course, those of us who were not on Barry and John's team were bound to determine that we needed to go ahead and start the game right now, which we did. 
And John did his level best, you know? He, he was the only guy on the team, and he, he struggled hard and got knocked down a lot. But in spite of everything he did, we scored a lot of goals in just a few minutes. And normally, you know, under these sort of conditions, he would have become extremely irate. But he didn't. He was smiling the whole time, even when he got knocked down. Because he knew that in just a couple minutes, Barry was going to be on his team. And sure enough, after Barry had finally taken the time to put on his skates well and buckle up his knee pads, uh, the game changed when Barry came under the ice. And it was an unfortunate change from my perspective because then our team started losing very fast. But uh, I think there, there's definitely some spiritual lessons here because we as God's children should be very well aware that many of the things we're trying to do may seem like we are failing. Yes, we should try and feed the hungry, even though we know that there will always be hungry people at some level. Yes, we should be passionate about human rights, even though we know that in all probability, human rights abuses around the world will only tend to grow. Why should we keep doing this? Because we know the end of the story. We have a big brother who has come and lived and died for each one of us. And when we face the challenges, we should know that we're not facing them alone and that the end is going to be different. The end is going to be different than um, what we're seeing today. So I want to encourage you to continue your work as missionaries. And I will tell you, as someone who has spent several years being a missionary, being a missionary can be extremely difficult, very wearing. It can be very discouraging too. But when you as missionaries face these moments of discouragement, and they will come, I hope you remember the story that I just told. And remember that Jesus is coming soon. And that I hope one day soon all of us will be there to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants. You fed me when I was hungry. You helped me when I was physically poor and when I was spiritually poor. Come, welcome home. That's my prayer. And I hope it's yours too. So let's all stand for prayer as we end the seminar. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for allowing us to come together and learn from you. Lord, you know that many things have been said over the course of this seminar by Petra, Mindy, me, and now all of us here. Lord, you know that among all these things that have been said, there is some wisdom and probably some foolishness as well. And Lord, I pray that we would all remember the wise things that were said and put them into practice. And if anything foolish was said, we would just forget those things and focus on what's good. Lord, I pray that you would give us the strength and courage to live out the lives you have given us. Help us to remember that each person in the world is, is our brother or sister who we are to treat as you treated us. And Lord, I pray you will help us to keep the big picture. Help us to keep our focus on you in spite of the daily challenges we face so that one day, someday soon, we'll be home with you. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. 
GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.